If you would, uh, join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts to engage God's Word. Heavenly Father, the book of Acts is all about how the Word went forth and conquered, and the Word went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And how your church, by the power of your Spirit, was involved in that. So as we engage this topic of the church in the context of the book of Acts, Lord, empower us by your Spirit and instruct us through your Word and envision us by that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In the book of Acts... Luke gives meaning to the word spiritual in our series title, The Church, A Spiritual Community. Luke, Paul's faithful traveling companion and at times his only companion, one point he tells Timothy, Luke alone remains with me. Luke alone. Luke has written more of the New Testament by volume number of pages, if you will, content, than anyone, and even Paul. He wrote Luke's Gospel, he wrote the book of Acts, a two-volume series, if you will. Not only was Luke a literary genius, he, he has left us with the only historical account of the church in its infancy. In our, in our series so far, The Church, A Spiritual Community, we've learned about the church as Peter describes it in his epistle. We've learned about the church from Paul the Apostle and his magnum opus on the church, the letter to the Ephesians. We learned about the church from Matthew's gospel as he viewed it in in going through Matthew's gospel. And then last week we, we viewed the church through the lens of Mark's gospel. How does Luke, a man who probably knew Paul better than anyone else, a man who contributed more to the New Testament than anyone else, How does Luke paint his portrait of the church? Well, for starters, Luke describes the gospel he wrote, Luke, as being about what Jesus only began to do and teach. What he began to do and teach. Read with me in Acts 1, verses 1 and 2. Luke writes, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. The implication is that the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and teach. The church as a spiritual community is a continuation of Jesus' messianic ministry in the world. You ever think about the church as a continuation of Jesus' messianic ministry in the world? How can the church possibly be a continuation of Jesus' messianic ministry? What is the source of such power? What are the commitments of this community? What will the accomplishment of this calling look like? What will it, how will it be carried out? To answer these questions, let's see what Luke tells us about the spiritual community called the church in the book of Acts. And we're going to begin under the heading of the church is a community filled with God's powerful presence. 
This is going to be our, 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 our most substantial point that we're going to look at today, and it is theological. The next one is more practical, but this one is very important to get our hands around if we really want to understand what Luke is communicating about the church. The church is a powerful community. Before anything else happens in the book of Acts, before the, the church church's call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth begins, before the church is even born, before people start selling their possessions and laying them at the apostles' feet, they must wait. They must wait until the Spirit comes on them and they receive power. Now, it's interesting because Luke, writing Luke's gospel in Acts, you'll find a number of parallels as you walk through the gospel and walk through Acts that, that help us understand things. And one of them, for instance, at the very beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts, when the, when the Virgin Mary was told that she would conceive and give birth, give birth to a son, she understandably asked, How will this be since I am a virgin? It's a reasonable question, right? Uh, um, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is talking to the 11 apostles after his resurrection about how the restoration of God's kingdom under Jesus will come about. And he tells them that they will be witnesses in all the world, a seemingly impossible task. And he told them, because I'm sure they were thinking, well, how in the world is this going to happen? I mean, look, there's 11 of us. One of us just, like, died, right? So, so, so how in the world is this going to happen? But... Notice that he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Very similar to what the angel told Mary. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How can the church be a continuation of Jesus' messianic ministry? Well, just as the Holy Spirit came on Mary and the power of the Most High then worked the miracle of conceiving Jesus in her womb, so too the Holy Spirit would come on the disciples and the power of the Most High uh, would come on them and the church would be conceived and brought forth. That's how the book of Acts begins. The existence of the church is as miraculous as the incarnation. The power to create the church in the world, the community that is a witness of Christ in the world is as powerful as as the power of the Spirit to put Jesus in Mary's womb. It's the same power. Now, there's a common misconception surrounding um, Acts 1.8, this statement, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's a common misconception surrounding that verse. It's not uncommon to hear people say that the Spirit's coming was about empowerment for mission. You ever heard it kind of cast in that way or even said it? It's about empowerment for mission. That's not entirely true. While it is true that the church had to wait for the Spirit to come in order that they would be empowered for mission, that would be true, the Spirit's coming was not about empowerment just for mission. Jesus did not say, but wait in the city and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you so that you can be my witnesses. There's no so that in there. As if the only purpose of the Spirit's power is for being witnesses. What Jesus said is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. 
Now, there's a difference between those two things, and I think an important distinction to be made. Jesus did not say that the empowering of the Spirit was solely for the purpose of being witnesses. While the Spirit does empower for mission, the mission of Jesus' kingdom being restored, the empowering of the Spirit is for so much more than what we traditionally put in the category of mission. In other words, it's for so much more than going and presenting the gospel to people and drawing people's attention to the gospel and demonstrating the power of the gospel. The power of the Spirit is for significantly more than that. The Spirit's power is clearly evident in leading the church, in transforming the people into the image of Christ, and I'm talking through the book of Acts. The Spirit's power is clearly evident in bringing peace and joy to the church, in discipling church members. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? That wasn't about mission. That was about discipline in the church. But the Spirit's power is there for that as well. And so many more things throughout the book of Acts. In fact, the Spirit's power is necessary for the entire miracle that we call the church. Just as it was necessary for the miracle called the Incarnation. The church could not be born, if you will, until the Spirit came. The church, as a spiritual community, as a Holy Spirit-filled community, is a powerful community. The Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts, at the beginning, as it were, hovered over the chaos again, the sea of humanity as, as he had in Genesis 1, over the chaos and the, and the waters. And when God said the Spirit's power created something utterly amazing once again, a new creation. And that new creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus now extends into the church. The disciples had to wait for God's presence to dwell in them in order for them to have the power to be the church. To be the church. The church is the promised community. Now, I'm gonna, I want to use Acts 1, 15 through 26, a, a text that not many preachers uh, pick to preach on. I mean, unless you're preaching expositorily through, you just avoid it. Okay, I mean, it's just one of those where you just kind of like, I don't think we need to talk about casting lots and picking apostles. Um, it's, 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 it's an odd text. But if, if Acts 1.14 was the end of chapter 1, and it, it flowed right into uh, chapter Acts 2.1, it would make perfect sense. Notice if you just put them together. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That's 1.14. Notice 2.1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That would have flowed perfectly. Why do we need the 15 through the end of the chapter? 15 through 26. Why? Especially given it's an odd little story about Matthias. Matthias. Oh, yes, because they need to tell us who Matthias is and how he got there. No, because he's never mentioned again in the entire book. So that's not the reason. He did not need any introduction because he disappears after his apparent introduction. Why not wait until after Pentecost to pick anybody? Because then they simply could have asked the Holy Spirit and he could have told them they wouldn't have to do this whole casting of lots thing. 
right? Because after Pentecost, you never see casting of lots again. They were guided by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit said, and they were led by the Spirit. You don't see anyone casting lots. That's an Old Testament thing. So why do it now when in just a few days they can do it after they've got the Holy Spirit? The whole thing is, is quite a bizarre story. But if the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, spoken of in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, if the restoration of the kingdom to Israel is beginning, there must be 12 apostles. You can't have 11 tribes when Pentecost comes, if Pentecost is what it really is. You must have 12. And therefore, you have to have a 12th. And that's the only reason this story is here. is so that we have the 12 apostles because 11 would never suffice for a fully restored people of God, a fully restored kingdom of God, a fully restored Israel. Jesus had told the 12 in Matthew's gospel in in Matthew 19, he said, in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, that's the ascension, which just happened earlier in chapter one, verses nine through 11. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, there has to be 12 for the church to be born as the new creation, Israel of God. The church is the community which God promised to bring together and pour his spirit upon. We are the promised community. The Lord had promised that the servant of the Lord, this goes back to Isaiah, would come and set up, if you will, restore the tribes of Jacob and turn back, bring back the dispersion of Israel. He promised to do this when the Spirit is poured out uh, on them from on high. The church is the fulfillment of the promises of the restored kingdom under the Messiah. For we see in chapter 2 in the book of Acts, as we'll see in a moment, the Spirit is poured out from on high, and that He is now regathering His people. And that's what the story of the whole book of Acts is about, this fulfillment of these promises. The church is the fulfillment of the promises of the restored kingdom under the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as He reigns from His throne in heaven. The church is the living temple. We see this in Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost is also the fulfillment of the Father's promise that Jesus kept referring to. Wait for the uh, fulfillment of what the Father promised. Wait for what the Father promised. And we we see that in Acts chapter 2, that what he promised comes. The Old Testament spoke about the day when God would pour out his Spirit once again. The glory, as it's put in the book of uh, Haggai, the glory of the latter house, the temple, would be greater than the glory of the former house. In other words, they were rebuilding a temple and the people were weeping because of the glory of Solomon's. They they remembered the glory of that temple and this one was nothing like that one. But the promise was that the glory of the latter house would would be greater than the glory of the former house, house referring to temple. In that day that the Old Testament, the promise kept referring to, the day of the Messiah, he would make a new covenant by putting his spirit within them and writing his law on their hearts, Jeremiah 31, 31. This is what the Father promised. So we read in Luke 24 and then in Acts 1. And it's, I'm going to compare these because Luke 24 at the end and Acts 1, 4 through 14 record the same events, one of them far more expanded, but they each contribute different details to the same events. So Luke 24, 49, I am going to send you what my father promised, but stay in the city 
until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had uh, uh, led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. So, when they returned to Jerusalem, where did they gather continually? It just told us there in verse 53. Say it. The temple. Put that in your minds for a second. Now, notice the details of Acts 1, 12 through 14. It adds something. It it gives us a little bit additional. Verse 12 of Acts 1, uh, chapter 1. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room that they were, uh, where they were staying. Those present, and then he names the 11, and he lists the 11 apostles. So he's just added a detail that we didn't have in Luke. Not, they didn't just go to the temple continually, but, oh, first they went to the upper room, the 11 guys, right? And that's where they were staying. I guess they had to put their suitcases away or whatever it was. And so, so they go there. But then it tells us in verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, it doesn't tell us where they joined together constantly in prayer. We have to assume that from the end of Luke. That tells us where they joined together constantly in prayer, which was the? Thank you. We get more detail in Acts 1 than we do in Luke 24, but there's one detail provided by Luke in, in, in the gospel that it, he doesn't provide in Acts, which tells us, uh, well, of course, in Acts he tells us where they're standing, but in Luke he tells us where they gathered, which was at the temple. Um, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. I think based on what we've read so far, we can assume that that place was the temple, but let's see. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, one of the most common ways that the the, the temple is described throughout the Old Testament is the house of the Lord. We just saw an example of that when I quoted from Haggai. The glory of the uh, latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. It was talking about the temple, but house. In fact, sometimes in your English Bibles, it just says temple. What, if, if you look back at the original language, the word was house, but because it was so common to refer to it, it just becomes a word that means temple, if you will. And so here, they're gathered together in one place. Luke's already told us where that is. It's the temple. He refers to it as the house, but that doesn't mean a bedroom upstairs in some other house. It's the temple. That's where they're gathered. So the myth of the upper room experience, just by the way, is in fact not a myth because it happened. It's just the myth about where it happened. Um, the where is the issue uh, in regard to that. So when you read house, don't think upstairs bedroom. Think temple. How appropriate. Listen. How appropriate that the Spirit would fall on the temple. But not on the building itself, but in the temple. The believers in Jesus who have gathered in one of the courts of the temple, God filled that temple once again when he filled the church with the Spirit. This is the latter house. This is the glory of the latter house that is greater than the glory of the former house. It's the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is the temple of the living God and just as fire came down and the glory of the Lord filled Solomon's temple when it was dedicated in Second Chronicles chapter 7, so too he descends on the church with fire and fills them with glory himself. 
the time he, uh, this time he comes to rest on the people, each one. That's why the fire separates. It doesn't just come in one stream. It separates and goes on to each one in order to be present in each person and to write the law in their hearts and not on stone tablets. The people are now the temple. The church is the temple. Wherever the church is, the temple is. See, it used to be that the temple was in one geographical location, Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Now the temple is wherever the church is. Which is why we see as we go through the storyline of the book of Acts that you have the same Pentecost experience in Samaria. Because now the church is there. And then you have the same Pentecost experience when the Gentiles are brought in. And then just to show that it can go outside the boundaries of the land of Israel. When you get into Acts chapter 19 you have these believers that are in Ephesus and you have the same Pentecost experience there. Why? Because wherever the church is there is the temple of the living God. Immediately after the Spirit is poured out and the church is born, we read this in in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. And this is under the heading, the church is a devoted community. A devoted community, devoted to teaching, devoted to one another, and devoted to prayer. Verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's the birth of the church, if you will, that day when when the disciples and then subsequently these additional 3,000 are added to the church. They devoted themselves, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, and to fellowship, or the fellowship, and uh, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It is a community that is devoted, first of all, to apostolic teaching. Now, when we say they're devoted to apostolic teaching, first, we're saying, We're speaking to the content of what they were devoted to learning. The content of what they were devoted to learning. The apostles' teaching. We as the church must be devoted to what the apostolic gospel is. The apostolic message is. We we aren't just devoted to any message or any gospel for that matter. We're devoted to the apostolic teaching. Not only does that speak to the content of what we're devoted to learning, it speaks to our intention in how we listen. When they tell us how to live, we must be devoted to doing what they said. See, if I'm devoted to their teaching, but I have no intention of of doing it, well, that's not really devotion, is it? You know, it's kind of like husband and wife having a conversation. The wife says, well, honey, you're not devoted to me. Well, honey, I am devoted to you. I made a commitment. Five years ago, when we got married, I'm devoted to you. I, I made vows to you. Yes, but honey, I've asked you for the last five weeks to maybe help out a little bit around here, and you haven't gotten up off the couch to stop watching TV. Yes, dear, but I am devoted to you. What kind of devotion is that, right? <laughs> devotion has to go beyond just our mouth, right? And so devoted to the apostolic teaching means that they're devoted to hearing and doing what they hear. Apostolic teaching clearly had authority in the lives of the believers in the pages of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. Devotion to apostolic teaching says something else about how I listen. It's commitment to a long-term process of learning. It's commitment to a long-term process of learning. It's different than wanting to hear a good message today. You know, you come today to church and you think, well, I sure hope he delivers a good one today because I really need to hear something good today. Well, that's not the same as this kind of devotion. 
I kind of hope you hear a good one today, too. I'm maybe a little bit less confident than you, but I'm kind of hoping <laughs> that you will. <clears throat> they, those devoted to apostolic teaching will no longer evaluate messages based on how it made them feel or whether it met some felt need, which they came in the doors with. No, devotion implies a long-term commitment to learning a body of teaching. When you're climbing a mountain, you don't stop after each step and say, now, now, did I reach the top? Did I, did I reach my goal? Well, no. That's just one step in a direction. But, but we do that with messages. We, did that help me? Did that benefit me? Did, did, did I walk away with something? No, it's just one step in the, the direction of what? Devotion to the apostles' teaching, learning what they taught. It changes how we listen in that regard. It's commitment to a long-term process. You don't, you don't walk up a mountain asking about each step whether it felt good or not. No. The issue is, was it aimed in the right direction or did I fall off the cliff or what happened here, you know? Devotion is necessary. It's like algebra. If you aren't committed to learning it, right, you're just going to say, oh, it's too hard to understand. But once you get committed, my son, he's, he, you know, algebra, he did okay with algebra. But when it came to trigonometry, he was like his father. It's like, yeah, whatever. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you serious? What, what's the point of this, right? And of course, there is a point. But, but now, now that he's got a job and he wants another position that would require him to, to become a machinist, he's taking machinist class and he's getting certified as a machinist. And guess what you have to learn to be a machinist? Trigonometry. And guess what? He's committed. And guess what? He understands it. Because it has a purpose, and he's, he's going after it, and he's working on it. And he's, he started out knowing that I have to learn this to get there, and I'm going there, so I will learn this. That's devotion to, to, to learning teaching, right? And we have to be devoted. We aren't to be devoted to hearing a word that is relevant or meaningful, nor a word that is practical or encouraging. Nothing wrong necessarily if words happen to be relevant or happen to be meaningful or practical or encouraging. But the apostles' teaching might be any of those or might not be any of those at a given point in time. Of course, I would argue that the very fact that it's the apostles' teaching makes it relevant whether we think it is or not. Redefines relevance, if you will. Plenty of other things could be relevant, meaningful, practical, or encouraging. But if they're not the apostles' teaching, the church has no business being devoted to them. I'm going to just say that last thing again because I think it deserved an amen. And so I'm going to say it again. Plenty of other things could be relevant, meaningful, practical, or encouraging. But if they are not the apostles' teaching, the church has no business being devoted to them. Amen. Thank you for that amen. So glad it came unprompted. Um, <clears throat> This also means that pastors must be devoted to teaching the apostles' teaching, and that will require work. It will require hard work. Paul writes Timothy and says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. What, what defines a, a worker who is approved by God? A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. When a pastor attempts to edify or be meaningful or relevant through something not rooted in apostolic teaching, it reveals a lack of devotion to the apostles' teaching. William Willimon offered the following regarding the 
unusual ethical demands of faithful preaching. The unusual ethical demands of faithful preaching. He says, quote, I am called to preach Christ and him crucified, not to make his gospel more accessible than he himself managed to make it. Now, I'm not arguing for unclear preaching, but I, I would argue that there are times we need to, 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 to make sure we stay with what the text is telling us and what it is saying, and it would be a, when it would be a whole lot easier to just say some simple truth that's somewhat related to what it says. He then relates the following anecdote. He says, At the conclusion of one of Chrysostom's sermons in Constantinople, when the congregation broke into enthusiastic applause, Chrysostom turned on the congregation and mocked them for applauding what they had no intention of taking to heart, derided them as scoundrels unworthy of the gospel, and announced that all applause would hereafter be forbidden in this, or that church he was speaking in, in that church. This announcement brought down the house with applause. And what you do with that, but anyway. The, the, the church is to be a word-centered community, and that word is, is the revealed truth of God through the apostles. It's the whole Bible, yes, but it's the whole Bible understood as how the apostles taught us it is to be understood in the New Testament, the, the, the teaching of, of the fulfillment of the, uh, of the Bible or of the Old Testament in Christ and the New Testament writings. We must be devoted to learning it and living it. Devoted to learning it and living it. Not just learning it, but learning it and living it. A community, the, the church is also a community devoted to a shared life. What does it mean when it says that they were devoted to the fellowship? It means they were devoted to participating in each other's lives. They were committed to being involved in one another's lives. Sharing their possessions. The word for fellowship, devoted to the fellowship, means close association involving mutual interest and sharing. Close association involving mutual interest and sharing. We see it immediately below this when they were selling their possessions and giving them to those in need. This is the church practicing the year of Jubilee. Now, I don't have time to go into it now, but Jesus in, 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 in the Gospel of Luke announces that the year of Jubilee is there, and then he told the people how to live. They are forgiven and they're to forgive everybody, release the debts and so on and so forth. He was basically saying, you've got to live as if it's a constant year of jubilee because in me it is. Now you see the church living in a constant year of jubilee, of restoration to the people of God. We also see it in the next line. They were devoted to eating together. You don't share life with people you aren't willing to eat at the same table with. Fellowship begins with a willingness to eat at the same table with people. Christ's table, yes. The Lord's table, yes. But I think in this context, it's actually speaking of something less specific than that. Paul, as Paul taught the Corinthians, rightly discerning the body of Christ means that we invite people to sit at our own table as well. That, that we have fellowship with them. Rich and poor together. Devotion to a shared life means we will be generous and joyous. We'll be generous and joyous. We see this in verse, Acts 2, verses 44 through 47. They were generous. Look at verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
But they were also joyous. Notice verse 46. Every day they continued meeting together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And, and this generosity and this joy had an effect. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Would you describe yourself as generous and joyous? The church should be generous and joyous. Doesn't mean they're not being persecuted, but they were joyous even when they were being persecuted. In fact, they were joyous even when they were giving away their possessions. It wasn't like, oh no, here it goes. No, they were joyous. They were devoted to one another, being devoted to a shared life. A shared life involves generosity and bears the fruit of joy. They're also a community devoted to prayer. We see that again in verse 42, that they were devoted to prayer. Since Jesus said that God's house, the temple, would be called the house of prayer in Luke 19, 46, the church then, as the temple or the house of God, must be devoted to prayer. We, we, we must be devoted to prayer. We are God's house, the temple of the living God, and it is to be a house of prayer. No exceptions. Being devoted to prayer includes being devoted to times of praying together. We see that in the very next chapter of Acts, chapter 3. Prayer was necessary because, as we will see, they were a persecuted community also. A persecuted community always needs to stay near God's presence. A community facing temptation needs to stay near God's presence. And I would argue that the church today faces temptation certainly at least as much as, if not more than, in any other generation. There's a connection between prayer and God's delivering presence. In Luke 22, we see that connection. At the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, it says, withdrew about a stone's throw behind them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And notice what happens as he's praying. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now, do you think an angel would have appeared had they just been sitting around talking about stuff and chatting it up and having a good old time and kind of Jesus is ignoring what's about to come because I don't want to deal with it? You know, you think the angel would have shown up then? I don't think so. Verse 44, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he arose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. See, prayer is essential if we're going to overcome temptation. If, if the church were more devoted to prayer, we would find more power over temptation and sin. We wonder, why does the church never seem to have any power over sin? Well, I'll give you a hint. Get up and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. It's a lack of devotion to prayer. And then in Acts 12, remember that night Peter's in prison? James had just been put to the sword right before that, and Peter's still there. They figured tomorrow Peter's getting it too. But the church is doing what? They gather up over at Mark's mom's house. Her name's Mary also. Everybody was named Mary back then. If you're never sure of what a woman's name is, like you're on a game show, and they're like, uh, the woman such and such, what was her name? If it's in the New Testament era, just Mary. You got better than 50-50 chance of being right because more than 50% of the girls were named Mary at that time. <laughs> Sorry if you're Mary here, I'm just saying. Um, 
nothing against it. I'm just saying they had a lot of Marys running around. So, yes, her name was Mary also. But they're, they're gathered up praying. So how are they sharing in Peter's persecution? See, shared life means that while he's in prison, he actually was sleeping. While he's in prison sleeping, they're up all night praying. I guess he's sharing in their life by resting <laughs> while he's in prison. But they're up praying. And what happens? Once again, as prayer is going on, an angel of the Lord shows up. It's funny, the last time an angel of the Lord showed up in response to Jesus' prayer, Peter was sleeping then too. I I don't know. Um, Pattern going on here. And he delivered Peter from that cell, that angel did. Throughout Acts, God's delivering and empowering presence shows up in threatening events as prayer is being made. The church is a powerful community because of the Spirit's presence, and they are a devoted community. And the church is also a missional community. It's also a missional community. Now, a missional community is a persecuted community. You know, instead of saying the church is a missional community, I I almost used the church is an impelled community. But it sounded too much like impaled community, which would be really bad. (laughs) So I didn't want to confuse you. But impelled means that we are being pushed out. We are being pressed out. We are being, progress is being made as, as the Spirit of the Lord is driving us outward. And the reason I, I almost use that is because missional, in a sense, can be misleading. When, when we read of, uh, of the church in the book of Acts, what we read about there is, is about a people who were sometimes intentional about expanding, but as often as not, they weren't necessarily intentional about expanding. They were empowered, they were being transformed, they were devoted, and at times they were expanding with or without their intentionality. They were a powerful church in a pressure cooker world. They were persecuted, which carries the idea, the very word persecuted carries the idea of being pursued and pressed forward, impelled. Not only did persecution cause them to scatter, to spread out, but the Lord was pressing them forward through that persecution. And what did they do? They they spread the word wherever they went. See, they were passionate and devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're passionate to obeying it. They're passionate about the Spirit transforming them. And as they're going, what are they talking about? The very thing they're devoted to, and the word spreads because of that. Now, if you'd ask them, they'd have probably stayed in Jerusalem what they wanted to do. That, you know. They, they didn't necessarily wake up saying, you know, we're, we're going to leave all this and go. And No, no, it was just persecution drove them. We'd like to think that as long as we make sure we're moving the mission out, the Lord won't use persecution to scatter us. But we have no basis for such confidence. There's no indication in the, in the book of Acts that they were scattered because of some disobedience to the Great Commission. We don't have any indication they're being disobedient to the Great Commission. It's just how the Lord chose to move the church forward. Persecution comes in seasons, and only the Lord can determine those seasons. But wherever they were found, they spread the word. Their devotion to the apostles' teaching created a buzz about that teaching, the truth of Jesus Christ. But the church is not only a persecuted community, it's a prevailing community. It's a prevailing community. Because they had the spirit and power, which was transforming them into Christ's image, because they were committed to the apostles' teaching, 
to one another to prayer, because they are faithful under persecution, they are always prevailing. Now, Acts 27 comes to mind as I think of the church prevailing in the mission. Acts 27 is the story of Paul and his journey to Rome on a ship as a prisoner. But it's also a picture of a persecuted and prevailing community called the church. It's a picture of the church on mission. The account of Paul and his journey to Rome on a ship is a picture of the church and how we move forward to the ends of the earth. It's a sea travel story par excellence, and if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to take some time this week and read the 27th chapter of the book of Acts and write on into the 28th chapter a little bit. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant account of that uh, uh, event, but, but Luke pins it in such a way, leaving out so many details that would get you distracted but then including details that draw your attention to the fact that he's talking about Paul's journey and our own. The book that is the story of the gospel going from Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the earth concludes with a dangerous journey from Judea to the distant edges of the empire. That's where the sea journey begins and it goes to the distant edges of the empire. It it models the very calling of the whole book of Acts. This travel story prepares the church, the community of Christ, for the dangerous mission on which we've been sent to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Often we see in this story, like our own, it will seem that others, ungodly people, are in charge. I mean, Paul's a prisoner. They put him on boats. He doesn't get to dictate what's going on. They tell him what he's going to do. He's opposed to it, but they do it anyway. Many times the winds are against us, no matter which way we turn, just as it was them. The mission will seem to be going slowly for long stretches of time. Sometimes we won't be able to make progress and the voyage will be with injury and much loss. Other times we'll be driven along by violent storms. And at times all will be darkness and all hope of anyone being saved seems to be gone. These are all things that we see in Paul's journey. And yet they're true of the mission of the church. In all these times we can know that not only will we be saved, but that the lives of many others will be given to us as well. And we will arrive safely on the other side. Amen? We're a persecuted community, and we are a prevailing community. Luke has has given us a a glorious picture of who we are as the church. The church is the continuation of the anointed messianic rule of Jesus on earth into all of history. It just continues forward. Like him, we, the church, were conceived by the Spirit, and through the Spirit we have received power from on high. But also, like Jesus, we must be devoted to the truth, to prayer, and to giving our very lives for others. Like Jesus, we'll be persecuted, but we will also prevail. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've already been made a part of this community, the church. You've been made a part of this empowered community, the community promised by God to be gathered together in the prophets of the Old Testament, a community that is the living temple of God that is fulfilled beginning with the day of Pentecost and going forward. And as such, we must be devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to learning it and living it. We must be devoted to a shared life, one in which we are generous with our possessions and our very selves, which results in the Spirit's empowered joy and gladness. We must be devoted to prayer because we're dependent on God. This community is going somewhere to the ends of the earth. We may go there because we are responding to a call, 
Or we may be pressured and pursued and wind up there as a result. It may seem that our going that in our going everything is against us and no one will be saved, but we will prevail as we continue to rely on the Lord. Are you a part of that community? Are you a part of that community? Now, if you're not, the only way in is through Jesus Christ. If you're not a part of that community, you become a part of that community by coming to Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin, and following him. There's no other way to do it. That, that's how. I encourage you to do that this morning if that describes you. But if you are, if you are already a follower of Jesus, then I would ask you, which, which of these aspects of what it means to be a spiritual community needs shoring up in your life? Which do you need to give attention to? Let's pray.